Well, good morning. You, uh, you heard some, the mic doing some weird stuff on the way up. You know, we, we have casualties with VBS, and one of them this time around, unfortunately, was a normal headset mic. So we'll, uh, we'll see how this mic holds up today. <laughs> but, I mean, technology never likes to play along, so I, I expect we might have some feedback issues, but we'll go with it. How many of you this week were woken up in the middle of the night by a crazy thunderstorm? Is I the only one? Yep. Good, I'm glad. <laughs> because yeah, what was it? Wednesday night into Thursday morning, um, I was woken up at 3 a.m. by thunder literally shaking our house by flashes of lightning that were making it feel like the daytime. It was crazy. And growing up, I was absolutely terrified of storms. Like, I mean, I, admittedly, I cried about pretty much everything as a kid, but storms were like, I was like under my bed, terrified. I remember once in the middle of the night, my mom woke me up because she thought I would like to see one, and I got so mad because I was terrified of them. But as I grew up and kind of got over that, I actually started to enjoy them, right? I loved hearing the thunder and seeing the, the lightning shows that would go off and hearing the driving rain and the winds. And now, with, with my enjoyment of storms and a little bit more time spent in the Word of God, when I hear storms, when I, when I hear thunder and see lightning, my mind starts to go to passages like Job 37, which you don't need to turn there. We're not going to be spending time there this morning. But Job 37 verses 1 through 5 say, At this also my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. Keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumblings that come from his mouth. Under the whole heaven he lets it go, and his lightning to the corners of the earth. After it his voice roars. He thunders with, with his majestic voice, and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. And so, thanks to passages like this, storms have become a really cool time for me to worship. And so I was able to, though frustrated that I was awake at 3 a.m., worship God in that time for his majesty, for his power, for his transcendence, his sovereignty over nature itself. Well, today we're, we're jumping into what is the last three weeks of our Knowing God by Name summer sermon series. Wow, that was a lot of S's. Um, and as we enter into these last three weeks, we're going to be taking time each week to focus on a name that is given specifically to one person of the Trinity. Now, because that sentence alone might be confusing, we're going to start today with a brief, I promise, brief theology lesson. Because if you sit under the preaching in this church, and maybe you aren't a Christian yet, or even if you're a young believer, or quite honestly, even if you're someone who has been a Christian for most of your life, but has really never taken the time to, to search and understand the character and nature of God, then you probably hear us say some things from the stage that are really, really strange. Because you will hear us unashamedly, unabashedly say over and over again that there is one God, one God who is worthy of worship, one God who is worthy of praise, one God who you should obey and pray to. Yet in the same sermon, you might hear us talk about the Holy Spirit or Jesus. Or to add even more confusion to it, you might hear us in one sentence say that Jesus is the Son of God, and then one sentence later specifically just say Jesus is God. That's all weird. But it is all made sense of by the doctrine of the Trinity. 
This is something that sets Christianity completely apart from any other religion in the world. We have a view of God that is fundamentally different from anybody else. And so to be clear, this word Trinity is not anywhere in the Bible. Rather, it's a word that has arisen to help us essentially be able to say easily what it is that is clearly taught throughout Scripture. And even though this word doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible, it has been believed and taught by the church from its earliest days. Even though they didn't fully understand some of the complexities since as early as the 80s and 90s AD, this is a doctrine that people have seen in the Bible. So, I've now said the word Trinity a lot. What does it actually mean? So I'm just going to steal the definition from a well-known theologian. So he writes that God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God, and there is one God. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God, and there is one God. So, so that's the key. Three persons, one God. One God, three persons. And to add a little bit of flesh to that, all three persons have existed from eternity past. There was never a time when any of them did not exist, and there never will be a time in the future when they do not exist. And then the one last thing that I think we need to understand as we work through these names is that within the Godhead, which is maybe a shorthand way of saying the Trinity, there is both unity and distinction. So for example, in, in the work of salvation, in us being saved, there is unity. There is one plan that God has set forth from eternity past that he would do. But each person of the Trinity plays a different primary function in that plan. Scripture teaches that God the Father chose his people from eternity past, that God the Son took on human flesh and suffered and died to redeem God's people, and that God the Spirit indwells and seals believers, equipping them to become more like Christ. Another example, in, in hearing our prayers, the one act where God hears what we pray to him, yet each person of the Trinity plays a different primary function. Almost across the board, we see in Scripture that prayer is to the Father, with some exceptions. We see that prayer comes through the Son. He stands as a mediator between us and God the Father, and that our ability to pray is empowered by the Holy Spirit. One act, hearing our prayers, but all three persons active. One act, one plan, one will, three persons. This is super confusing, right? Okay, I'm willing to admit that. I hope we're all willing to admit that. So some of you might be expecting me now to try to use an illustration. Maybe some of you have heard the Trinity described like an egg or like the states of water or maybe even a three-leaf clover, but I'm not going to do that. And, and there are two really key reasons why I'm not going to do it, and I would strongly caution you against doing it as well. Because every illustration that we can come up with has a serious shortcoming. And if those shortcomings are brought to their logical conclusion, we can start to think very wrongly about God. That's how you end up with people like the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons who deny that Jesus is part of the Trinity, deny that he existed from the beginning. Second reason is that I, I actually think it's okay that we can't wrap our minds around this doctrine. You know, I, I think, and 
maybe you wouldn't feel the same way, but I think that if I could wrap my mind around the very basic nature of God, that wouldn't make him very godlike, because we're just creation. We have tiny little brains. We live for, you know, 60, 70, 80 years, and then we die. We don't see much. And if in that amount of time it was, a, it was possible for us to understand fully the nature of God, that to me would actually stand as a reason for maybe why the God of the Bible isn't real. So I think it's actually pretty compelling that we can't even understand his most basic nature. But like I said, I'm going to keep it brief, so I'm done. That's all the theology for today. Um, I love this doctrine. I would love to preach a whole sermon on it. I actually think the doctrine of the Trinity is extremely practical. I think it shapes our Christian lives every single day. And if that's interesting to you, talk to me or email me or call me. I would love to talk to you about that. But just to summarize, what do we need to understand for these three weeks? God is three persons, but one God. And it's important for us to understand that within the Trinity, there is both unity and distinction. And so with all of that, out of the way. We jump into our name for this week, which is the name Abba. So this name is uniquely used in scripture for God the Father. So it would be wrong for us to call God the Son Abba. It would be wrong for us to call God the Holy Spirit Abba. And that's not that surprising because this word simply means Father. See, the New Testament, pretty much all of it, was written in Greek. But Abba is a borrowed word from Aramaic, the language that Jesus and his disciples would have spoken in everyday life. So essentially, amidst all the Greek of the New Testament, all of a sudden, this random Aramaic word gets thrown in. It's just there. And and most scholars think that the reason for this is to communicate a certain level of intimacy, because this word Abba was a familial term. Adults and children alike would have referred to their fathers by the word Abba. And what's even more interesting is there are only three uses of this word in the entire New Testament, and all of them are written out the exact same way. In the original language, it will say Abba ho pater, which is literally the Aramaic word for father and then the Greek word for father side by side, just used one after another. So why is this worth a sermon? Right? Because don't we know this? I mean, if you listen to us pray, we we often refer to God as Father. We sing about it in songs. We talk about this consistently. It might be the single most common title we use to talk about God. But as I noted in my email this week to the congregation, and as I'd like to point out again today, familiarity can breed contempt, or at the very least, indifference. And so because we hear this all the time, I think we can often miss the extremely beautiful truth that is found in this name, in our ability to call God by this name. I mean, let's go back to the story I told at the beginning of the service. I didn't do that for no reason. Laying awake in a storm, thunder, lightning, powers that I cannot comprehend, right? If a tornado touched down right then, I can't stop it. No power, nothing that I can do. And that reminds me that God is powerful and transcendent. Yet this title, this name, reminds me that God invites his people to know him intimately. The transcendent, powerful God of the universe invites his people into personal relationship. And that is the beautiful idea that we will spend this morning exploring together. 
in a way, this sermon is both a preacher's dream and a preacher's nightmare, because the implications of the name Father are many. The New Testament is full of things that happen because God becomes our Father through Jesus. It could easily be an entire sermon series. So, to, to focus and limit myself a little bit, this morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at the implications of the three texts where that exact Aramaic, Greek, Abba, Father thing happens. To understand the unique way that this repetition teaches us about our God. So we'll be in three texts this morning, one from the Gospels, two from Paul, and we'll spend just a little bit of time in each of those. The first question that I I think we have to answer is who has the right to call God by this name? See, because some of the names we've looked at in this series, anybody could use, right? Think back to the name Yahweh, this personal name for God. Okay, we see in the book of Exodus, Pharaoh, an idol worshiper, Call God by the name Yahweh. Anybody can use it. But if we think back just to last week, the sermon, the Lord is our banner or the Lord is our victory. Well, for unbelievers, that isn't true. That is only true for believers who through Christ have eternal victory over sin and death. So some of the names of God, anybody could call him and it would be true. And other names are essentially reserved for Christians. And the reason that I want to point that out with this name is I think that culture broadly gets this wrong when it thinks about the God of Christianity. And I think because our culture so often gets it wrong, we can tend to slip into that same thinking. Let me, let me give you an example from a song that I'm sure all of you have heard at one point. I actually I can't believe that I'm about to read these lyrics during a sermon, but here we go. This is the, uh, the third verse of Here Comes Santa Claus. Here comes Santa Claus, here comes Santa Claus, right down Santa Claus Lane. He doesn't care if you're rich or poor, he loves you just the same. Santa Claus knows that we're all God's children, that makes everything right, so fill your hearts with Christmas cheer, because Santa Claus comes tonight. I hate that I just did that. But, but I read those lyrics to say that I think Santa is wrong, which If you're keeping track now from this pulpit, a few months back I told you Carrie Underwood is a bad theologian for Jesus Take the Wheel, and now I'm taking shots at Santa. I don't know. You guys pay me to be up here. This is on you. (laughs) But I make this point to say that the Bible is actually clear that being a child of God is not a universal reality, but it is tied inseparably to a belief in the gospel, which for some of you is probably throwing up red flags because this goes against something that you've believed and been taught so much. So I don't want to be the one to make this point. I want to let the word of God make this point. And so with that, we go to the first use of this name that we're going to look at this morning. It's in Galatians chapter 4. I hope you have a Bible along with you. I really hope that. I think as pastors, we would love when we say, oh, turn to Galatians chapter 4 to see everyone pull one out, turning to it. So we'll be looking at Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, the first few verses we will be in this morning. Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7, I'll read those now. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. 
So just some context so we kind of understand some of the weird language here. The book of Galatians was written to combat false teaching that had slipped into the church that Christians had to keep the Old Testament law in order to be saved, especially the act of circumcision. So there was these false teachers who came in, were convincing people that they had to keep the festivals, keep the feasts, keep the, the purity laws, like not eating pig or not wearing clothes of two fabrics, and especially that men would have to be circumcised. So broadly, Paul's point here is to say that Jesus was born as a human and kept the law perfectly so that people would no longer need to keep the Old Testament law in order to be saved. But more specifically, for our purposes this morning, we need to pay attention to the words in verse 5. So Paul writes, uh, Jesus was born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The text is clear that those who are redeemed receive adoption. It's a cause and effect. They are redeemed, therefore they are adopted into God's family. And when we understand scripture rightly, it's really clear that this is the only way, right? Because like we've said, God is holy. He's infinite. He's, he's transcendent. He's just. And he created everything for his glory. But we as mankind rebelled. And we try consistently to steal that glory from him, to do what we want, to live for ourselves. There's no solution there. Not from our end, at least. In fact, the Bible is clear that apart from Christ, we are enemies of God, not his children. But God in his mercy sent his son, Jesus Christ, to go to the cross, to live a perfectly obedient life, and to absorb the wrath of God against all sin on our behalf, so that when we put our faith in him, we can be forgiven, and we can be made into children of God. So, as the text continues, for those who put their faith in Jesus, God gives his Holy Spirit, who from inside of them cries out, Abba, Father. When we put our faith in Christ and are indwelt by the Spirit, the Spirit inside of us, the Holy Spirit of God inside of us, testifies to us that God is our Father now. So when the thunder shakes your home, the Holy Spirit inside is saying, don't worry. Yes, he's powerful. Yes, he's big. But he's your father. Or when you fall into that sin that you just cannot shake, the Holy Spirit says again, you've been freed from this. Flee from sin. But there is no condemnation. He is your father. The doctrine of adoption has to be one of the most incredible and beautiful realities that we see in Scripture. I mean, I, I probably say that about, about most doctrines when I bring them up from here, but this one is special because this is something that, that beyond all possible explanation, a perfect, infinite, just, holy God would, by no merit of their own, invite broken, rebellious humans into his family with nothing to offer, with nothing to give, right? That's crazy. He has given so much. And then beyond just offering forgiveness, he offers sonship. He offers a place in his family. Now, before we go any further, I think it's important that I just take a couple minutes just to say 
If you had a bad father, whether he was abusive or abandoned your family or neglected you, first of all, I am so sorry. That was, a, that was an act of rebellion against God by your father. He not only sinned against you, he sinned against God. It's horrific, and I'm sorry. But I implore you not to make the mistake of missing the beauty of God's offered fatherhood because of your father's failings. Because God offers himself to us as a perfect father, infinite in love, infinitely forgiving, infinitely involved in our lives, infinitely supporting, infinitely listening, always ready when we need him. He's better than your awful earthly father. And quite frankly, I had a great dad. He's better than my dad. And he always will be. He is the perfect father, and he offers himself to us in that role because of what Jesus has done. But let's look at some of the other implications from some of these other texts where we see this name. You can flip over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. We see a second use. It feels very similar. If you kind of have that Galatians 4 passage in the back of your mind, you're, you're going to hear very similar language. You can see that Paul had similar ideas in mind here. Romans 8, verses 14 through 17. Here Paul writes, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So the main idea here is the same. For those who have put their faith in God, which in this passage Paul describes as those who are led by the Spirit of God, they are adopted into God's family. And Paul builds this on a contrast. He says, when you became part of God's family, you did not receive a spirit of slavery, right? Of slavery to sin, of slavery to your own desires. You were set free from your sinfulness, your slavery of sin to fall back into fear. And I think what Paul is trying to say is, when you were brought into God's family, not only were you freed from sin, but the fear of the wrath of God that you deserved is gone. There's no fear because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So that's not what you got. Instead, you got a spirit of adoption. So rather than fear over the wrath of God, it's a confidence to approach God as Abba, to approach God as Father. It's kind of interesting because in Galatians, Paul says that it's the Holy Spirit inside of us who cries out, Abba, Father. And then here in Romans, he says, it's we who cry out, Abba, Father. So it's like in that first moment of conversion when we receive the Holy Spirit. It's one of the first things he does is he confirms in us, God is your Father now. And then that frees us to do the same, to proclaim God as our Father. So as Paul says, the Spirit now constantly bears witness for us that we are God's children. And he continues, if we are God's children, then we are heirs. Which begs the question of what? What are we heirs of? What do we look forward to inheriting? What does being a child of God entitle us to? 
And the answer, as absolutely crazy as it may sound, is literally the entire world. Romans chapter 4. Just flip a few pages back in your Bibles. Romans chapter 4, verse 13. Paul writes here, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. We, as Christians, are Abraham's spiritual offspring. We are his children. And so if God promised to Abraham the entire world, then we as his spiritual children, we get the same promise. The world is our inheritance. And of course it is, because Jesus is the king. And the Bible talks about him like our older brother. He was the firstborn, and we were the many adopted children that he died to bring in to the family. He is the firstborn who has many siblings. And he, the firstborn, our great older brother, has promised us a seat on his throne with him. Revelation 3, verse 21, he writes, To the one who conquers, this is the words of Jesus, the one who conquers, meaning the one who endures as a Christian to the end of their life, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So every time that we come to God as father or Abba, it is a reminder that as his children, our future is not a future of wrath, not a future in which we face the judgment of God, but a future in which we experience perfect, eternal pleasures in God as inheritors of literally everything. Everything. But, go back to that Romans chapter 8 passage, and we see as Paul comes to the end of that section, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, what? Provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. So I think it would be a legitimate question now for you to say, okay, Daniel, so what? Okay, so you're pointing me to these great eternal promises, but I'm suffering now. I'm struggling now, and I'm not convinced that I have the strength to endure to the end. So what now? And to that I say, let's look to Jesus. Mark chapter 14. The most unique use of Abba Father because it comes from the mouth of our Lord. Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 42. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane shortly before his crucifixion. We read there these words. And they, Jesus and his disciples, went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came to them and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. 
And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So we're shortly before the crucifixion here. Jesus is fully aware of what's coming, but obviously not wanting to face the coming suffering and death. So he brings all of his disciples up to Gethsemane and then specifically brings his three closest, kind of this inner circle that he had built. And they go off to pray with him and support him in his hour of need. Worse yet, just as this passage ends, we see, as it were, the the beginning of the end. Judas comes, betrays Jesus into the hands of of a mob, and then ultimately that night or the next day, Jesus is crucified. So with this scene in mind, I want us to see five things about Jesus' use of Abba here. So the first one that I want us to see is that Jesus was addressing God directly when he called him Abba. That might sound like a weird thing to point out, but when I was at Bible school, there was one very well-respected teacher named Mr. Armstrong. He was considered probably the best Bible teacher on the campus. We had missionaries come on and tell us he was one of the best Bible teachers they had heard. Incredible teacher, um, an, an older gentleman, Everybody respected him. When you spoke to him, you called him Mr. Armstrong. Some of the teachers you were on a first-name basis with, but it was Mr. Armstrong. Until you were back in the dorm and maybe talking about something funny he did in class, and you might refer to him as, as simply Armstrong, or maybe after checking your shoulder a little bit, be like, oh, hey, guys, remember what Arnie did in class today? And again, just make sure that there's no possible way he could have heard that. The reason I tell this story is to make the point that often we have a tendency to be maybe less respectful or reverent of people than we have to be when we're not speaking directly to them. But we see here that Jesus did not say to his disciples, okay, I'm going to pray to my father now and then fall down in prayer and begin by saying, oh, great holy one, which would have been a completely right way to start a prayer. But it's not how he does it here. And what we see here is that our Father approves of us calling him that. He delights in his children drawing near to him intimately. It's not like we just kind of are aware that this relationship exists, but then we can't ever approach God as our Father, but that he invites us into his presence as his children. He's the king of the universe who we rebelled against, but he invites us into his presence as children. He delights in us acknowledging him as our father. Second thing I want us to notice about the use here is that Jesus used this name when he was greatly distressed. This was the most difficult night in Jesus' earthly life, and it was this name that he turned to to find comfort in that. I think what we see here is that this relationship, it isn't theoretical, This isn't just a formal title, like you might see in the Catholic Church when they call priests father. Nobody actually considers a priest like their dad. But when we approach our God as father, it is an actual relationship. It is an actual relationship of father and child. It's not theoretical. It's not formal. It's a relationship of a loving father who listens and offers 
comfort in our need. That's what's offered to us. Jesus is the only begotten Son. He is the only true Son. But by paying for our sin, he opened the way for us to be adopted, not just formally, but but in reality as God's children, that he would be our Father. The third thing I want us to see in this passage is that even while Jesus' friends failed to support him, his Abba was patient to hear him again. There's a simple line in these verses that struck me because we see that Jesus comes back from praying, comes to these three who he brought specifically to support him, and finds them asleep. They've failed, and they fail repeatedly to stay awake and to pray with him and to support him. And then after questioning them on it, he returns, and the text simply says that he prayed, saying the same words. Our Father, our Abba, does not tire of hearing our requests and needs. It's not like he's just going to get annoyed when we come to him in desperation over and over and over with the same problems that just don't seem to go away. It's that same sin that we just can't shake and we go back again and again, Lord, give me strength, free me from this. Or that same relational struggle that is is stressing us out, is causing us a lot of harm, and we're praying, Lord, help me to navigate this relationship. And we come again and again and again, and he's okay with that. In fact, the parables that Jesus tells in the Gospels make it clear that that's what he desires of us, to be like the annoying widow who keeps coming to the judge looking for her justice. Let's be very honest. All of our earthly support systems, they're going to fail. They're eventually going to get tired of us. They're going to get tired of our constant distress, of our constant problems. But our Abba never tires of loving and supporting his children. The fourth thing I want us to see in this passage is that Jesus remained reverent, even as he displayed his intimacy with God. Jesus came in prayer and stated very clearly what he wanted. He didn't want to die. He wanted the cup to pass from him. He did not want to go to the cross if there was any other way. So he said what he wanted, a very normal thing for a son to do with his father. Yet we can also see in his prayer, even though it's three lines, three sentences, that he remained reverent and acknowledged the father's greatness. Because even with his request, he still says, God, all things are possible for you. An acknowledgement of his greatness. But then even more, not my will but your will be done. Admitting that even in that intimate relationship, the Father is the one who decides how things go. And Jesus was okay with that. Jesus' intimacy with the Father in no way lessened his reverence for God. He always honored his Father fully in his conduct. And fifth and finally, we see in this story that Jesus' present and future circumstances did not change his desire to draw near to his father intimately. Jesus knew what was coming. This night ended in one of his closest friends betraying him. It ended in him tortured and hung up on a cross. Yet his sufferings, his coming sufferings, his present sufferings, did not alter his desire to draw near to his father and address him in the most intimate of terms. It was God's will that he would be crucified. It was God's will that he would suffer. God had ordained these moments, yet it did not change how Jesus approached him. He loved 
and trusted his heavenly father to always do what was right and good, even when it was going to result in his suffering. And so too should we, knowing that nothing we face comes apart from the loving command of our father. But we learn to draw near to him even when it feels like he's mistreating us, even when it feels like he has done us wrong. We believe in his word where it says that he does all things for our good and we draw near to him as our father. So church, in our present sufferings, these ones that that feel like they're too much, that we cannot endure through, we should learn from the example of Jesus. We should confidently approach God as our father. We should joyfully draw near in our darkest hours for comfort. We should feel safe being repetitive in our brokenness, because we have a lot of it. Yet, we should never confuse intimacy with permission to be flippant and to approach him in any other way than with the absolute and perfect reverence that he deserves. And finally, we should fight even harder to draw near to him in the times when it feels the most difficult to do so. He is our father. He is good. Everything he commands for us is good. And we trust and we draw near. Well, as I said, what we looked at today is only a small amount of what it means for God to be our Abba, our Father. Yet what we can learn from just these three uses in the New Testament is that knowing God as our Father is our only hope, both now and in the future. If he is not our Father, we are his enemies. And if that's you today, you must turn to Jesus as the only way to be adopted into the family of God. Your works aren't going to do it. Your church attendance is not going to do it. Your baptism as a baby is not going to do it if you do not have faith in Jesus to make you right before God. But if he is our Abba, then he is our ultimate comfort through the sufferings that we face on earth and our ultimate guarantee that when the suffering is over, When we have endured to the end, which he has promised, he will sustain us to the end. Our Abba will give us everything, the whole world, and we will reign with our great older brother who made a way for us to be adopted into the family of God. Let's pray. Father, what an incredible privilege that we as your people can approach you with confidence, that we as your children, as your sons and daughters can approach you with confidence. We don't deserve this. We have no right to claim this. We can offer you nothing. Yet you gave up your one true son to make children of us rebels. Father, I pray now for my brothers and sisters in this room as they suffer, as we face life in this world that is never easy. Father, I pray that you would sustain them, that you would be near them, that your presence would be evident, that they would know what it means to call you Abba, Father. I pray that the Holy Spirit in each one of them would cry this out all the more, that their assurance would be full. They have been bought and paid for. They have been adopted into your family. 
Father, thank you for this incredible gift. Never let us use it as an excuse to be flippant with you, but instead teach us how to approach you with the respect you deserve, but the intimacy you desire. Because you have made that way. By your son, you have done the work. So Father, help us to live that out each and every moment of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.